0: The idea that you may have been incapacitated and then the kids would wake up to that, it's terrifying.
1: Yeah. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events. And what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Hey, listeners, today on Badass, we are turning the tables. I am going to be talking about my book, which is out now and available on Amazon. It's called Holding Hope, One Family's Odyssey Through Lyme Disease and Psychosis. And Laura, Laura Gordon, uh, who you might remember from our episode on Lyme disease, is here to interview me and I get to be in the hot seat. So I am so excited to share some of the book with you and talk a little bit more about my experiences, and I hope you enjoy it. Laura, thank you so much for being here today to talk with us. I'm so excited to be here
0: and have you in the hot seat. So you've written a book. It's a memoir, and this is um, going to touch on, you know, I feel like it's a season one book. Um, summary kind of yes because you're going to be touching on lyme disease tick-borne illness let's say you're going to touch on mental health you're going to touch on domestic abuse Mm -hmm. okay so you're just like you've lived all of it and you've written a book and what would you like to share with us first
1: Yeah, I thought I'd start by sharing a bit from the book about my illness, um, because that's what I write about first in the book is my illness, and then we get into uh, some of the things that happened uh, with my husband's mental health. So I'm going to start, and just to give uh, you listeners a little bit of background, the section of the book covers a time when I had been extremely ill And I did not yet have a name for what was plaguing me. Um, And I had already been paralyzed and on a ventilator at this point. And I was uh, in a situation where I was um, at home and uh, had been so ill that I was basically bedbound. And I was collapsing after just trying to walk to the bathroom. And I had gone to a hospital for the second time to try to get some more assessment to figure out what on earth was happening. And at that hospital, um, the doctor who had assessed me had said that it was possible that I had this thing called a conversion disorder. And uh, as I read the piece, uh, what a conversion disorder is, is going to become more clear. For listeners who don't know what a conversion disorder is, a conversion disorder occurs when a person has experienced a traumatic event or extreme stress, and they're unable to acknowledge it or process it. So instead, the stress on their system causes physiological problems. The neurologist came in with his kind bedside manner, asked me if I knew what I had been diagnosed with at the larger hospital. A conversion disorder, I said, but I don't think the diagnosis is right. The neurologist looked at me with great empathy and began to explain that the entire thing, the first paralysis, the vent, the rehab, was all part of a conversion disorder. There was actually nothing wrong with me. I began to sputter my dispute. I didn't have reflexes. How can a conversion disorder take away your reflexes? And I was placed on a vent. They tested my breathing and it was failing. How would my breathing fail from a conversion disorder? Again and again, he shooed away my questions, giving me vague answers and stating he hadn't seen that detail in my chart. Although I checked later and it was all there. He maintained that physicians treating me had made a mistake in placing me on the vent. They overreacted, he said multiple times. When I brought up the fact that I had no history of trauma, no major losses, no abuse or neglect in my past, he actually told me I had probably been sexually abused as a child and blocked it out. Oh my God. He said that in front of my mother. He told me his office would set up a psychiatrist appointment for me, and there was nothing more he or any other medical doctor could do for me. I was, in essence, ushered into the wilderness with this diagnosis. Now, no doctor would take my condition seriously with this diagnosis on my chart. When he left the room, I lost my composure and found myself racked by sobs. The fear, pain, and hopelessness had been building since the first episode of paralysis in the grocery store. I couldn't contain it any longer. I wasn't going to get help. I was on my own with this thing and it was ruining my life. There was nothing I could do and no one who would help. I cried the entire ride home. I sat in my bathroom and cried for another hour, hiding myself away so I didn't scare my children who had just arrived home from school. Scott sat with me in the bathroom holding me while I cried, staying silent because what was there to say? There was no clear path forward and we were both terrified and helpless in the face of this nameless illness, not only was I left without a diagnosis and treatment path, but I was also to blame for being sick in the first place. If these doctors were to be believed, I was sick because I hadn't acknowledged and dealt with my stress. Even while largely rejecting this diagnosis, there was a part of me that took it on. A part of me felt incredibly guilty for putting my family through this hell. A part of me felt as if both my body and mind had betrayed me. I was utterly lost. Whoa
0: there there are some things in there I think I didn't know. Mm. Um, uh, can you say, can you tell me a little bit more about what happened in the grocery store?
1: Oh, yeah, so. I had had that first really big episode of paralysis and then I'd gone to rehab and they had me do an outing so that they could just make sure that I could function out in the world mm-hmm. and I had been doing so great in rehab. I like I was like off the charts. Like I and and this is one of the reasons that we quickly realized I didn't actually have Guillain-Barré syndrome, which is what I had been diagnosed with when right. I was first paralyzed because Most people who have Guillain-Barre syndrome and it's so acute that they have to be on a ventilator, it takes them years to recover. And oftentimes they don't even make a full recovery. They'll still, you know, have massive weakness in their legs. And I was like running stairs and doing all this stuff in rehab. And so, so we go to the grocery store and we're doing this outing and all of a sudden I started to feel this sense of profound weakness, and we made it to this lounge area that they had by a Starbucks, and I just went down, and I became totally paralyzed again, but just only for a few minutes.
0: Oh my God! Yeah. But you were accompanied at this time. Someone was with yeah, you. Yeah, okay. there was
1: an occupational therapist there, okay. and my mom was there. Um, so that was what I was referring to. Like ever since, like that happened in that grocery store. Yeah. Like I knew. Something's really wrong. Really wrong. And I could not get a doctor to pay attention. I mean, they discharged me two days after that happened, um, wh- and just acted like it was no no big thing. <laughs> and this is and this is you know all
0: after you. At one point, it had to be on a ventilator when this happened. So, if I'm sure, it felt very scary for you to just be released back into the wild, as you you know you yeah. so adi- adequately described. It's just. There's so much um fear and hopelessness. I think I think in the excerpt of the book that you read, you did such a good job of letting us feel what
1: that must have been like for you. Yeah. Um and I think that hopelessness, that's such a good word because, you know, up until that point, I'd had this idea in my head, like, okay, like you know, we're going to get this figured out. We're going to solve it. You know, and even just a little bit earlier in um, the book, I'm talking about how, well, I still had this hope. You know, when I go to this outpatient neurologist, you know, I go to this appointment, like, yeah. he's going to tell me that a test result came back and I have something and, you know, I'm going to be able to have a treatment and I'll get better. And then when he told me, oh, it's basically, it's all in your head, I was so hopeless. Yeah. Because then it's like, oh, my God, like, there's no treatment. There's no nothing. Because even
0: when you're thinking that it could be something really bad, which obviously, based on your, the symptoms that you were having, it, it was something really bad. Even when you're thinking that's what this could be, just tell me what it is because we have a way forward. So having someone come back to you and say, it isn't anything. It's in your head. Um, you just deflate.
1: yeah. And it was so frustrating going back, you know, because um, I, did, I did go back and I combed my medical records. Yeah. And there are these signs all along, you know, like absolutely there are markers that I had some kind of infection. Mm-hmm. Like absolutely there were things. And it was in my freaking medical records that I didn't have reflexes that they were doing this type of testing called an NIF, um, which is a respiratory test. And I was scoring lower and lower on it. So like, it was there. Well, they don't put you on a ventilator
0: for no reason.
1: Right, you yeah. Know? They overreacted. <laughs> like, well, that's such a serious thing to be put on a ventilator. Like, <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, it just- it And all... you knew that- but you also
0: felt like, you know, when you talk about there being a part of you, that maybe that was the truth. And you look back and you can see times when you were really stressed out. And, and you know, maybe self-care hasn't been your priority. And you've put your family through all
1: this and it feels terrible to do that. And that adds to your stress. And so you're thinking, well, okay. Well, what was also super confusing about the conversion disorder diagnosis is that actually all of this came at a time in my life where I had had that epiphany around self-care. Like, my daughter was born um, in 2010, and um, I really had been neglecting myself. And so after she was born, she was about a year old, and I was just exhausted, yeah. Like I could I was felt like I could just barely function and I'd you know, I'd gained a lot of weight and I'd just, you know, was feeling almost like a sense of depression just from like being so run down and exhausted, right. you know, yeah. And so I actually, um, like started a yoga practice that I, I was really committed to and I quit eating refined sugar. And, and I don't think weight loss is always like a sign of health. Right. Um, but it, it in, in my case, I did lose 40 pounds, um, just from not eating, you know, just from eating, you know, foods that were more nourishing for my body, um, right. not being like super restrictive or anything. And then really committing to like yoga and some exercise and, and so, like, I was actually like, like, feeling better than I ever had in my life. And I'd even taken like, I'd gone from working five days a week to working four days a week, so that I'd have a day off to do self care. Like, wow. it was like a self care day wow. where I would hike every like that day would come around, and I might send my kids to school, and then I would take care of myself. I would hike, and I would, you know, or, yeah. or maybe tend to things. That we needed for the household, so I didn't have to do everything over the weekend. But, um, but yeah, so it was so surreal to be like, "Dude, like I am like on top of this self care, stress management, right? right?
0: Yeah."
1: Um, and then to have have that diagnosis, which is all about like, you know, you have stress that you're not dealing with, was just like,
0: "What?" Well, and there's this this implication that there's this deeply unconscious unexamined trauma and as a mental health professional yourself i think that for me was always what stuck in my mind about this was i was like she knows what a conversion disorder is and she knows she doesn't have one
1: yes and it was so maddening yeah to be like yo i've probably spent more time with the dsm than you have dude yeah oh yeah I mean, I'm sure I have spent more DSM yeah. time with the DSM than, you know, uh, this doctor because, you know, even at that point in my life, um, I hadn't quite become a full-time therapist. I'd done a lot of mental health work. But I also, like, in the training that I did, we spend an entire semester on the DSM. Wow. An entire semester. <clears throat> right. right? like. Yeah. You know, I don't know exactly what medical doctors get, but I do I would be very surprised if it's an entire semester. I
0: would too. Wow. So, after you came home and felt, you know, you had nowhere to go from here and you're afraid of this happening again, obviously, what types of modifications did you make to your family life to support the possibility that this was going to keep coming up.
1: Yeah, we actually had to, like, basically get full-time care for me because um, it could be kind of dangerous. Like, I mean, I would just drop. Like, I would drop. I'd drop in the kitchen or in the bathroom. You know, we had tile floors. So it was still happening. Oh, yeah. This happened for months. Oh, my gosh. um, Yeah, it it was still happening. And then, of course, there was the fear that I might stop breathing. Um, right. Because that had happened during my first episode of paralysis, and so yeah, it was a ter- it was a terrifying time. You know, we really didn't know where to turn. We, you know, my family doctor, um, you know, she really is a compassionate person, a loving person, and I know that she had a lot of compassion for me, but she just didn't know. Right. You know, she yeah. didn't know what this could be, and you know, with the conversion disorder on my chart, I I mean, it really was so challenging to...
0: I was going to comment on that, actually, when you talked about there being something in your chart that could potentially influence the perception that a next provider or a new provider or another person on your care team would have of you right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. This is something that... I think we've all come up against with chronic illness. You're coming in here and talking about these crazy symptoms. yeah, <laughs> and you've got crazy in your chart. yeah.
1: You know? it, it, and it it actually has impacted me. yeah. Um, you know when I this was back in 20, I think this is at the end of 2014 when I had that doctor's visit December of 2014 all the way in the future to 2020. Um you'd never I can't even believe this happened to me, but I got another tick bite. Oh, and I in, remember. It was in January of all months. January in Indiana is usually really cold and you usually wouldn't get a tick bite, but but um, you would. But yeah, I was <laughs> dog sitting for a dog that lived in the country and oh. the dog had brought a tick into the house and it got on me because they love me Mm -hmm. and I got another tick bite and I got sick again. And so I ended up, um, luckily I, I already had my Lyme literate doctor. I'd found her already. You know, she'd already helped me get better the first time. And I had been better. I'd been better for three years at that point. Um, and so I had this just, awful reaction to an antibiotic and um, Laura knows uh, the Jerish Herxheimer reaction yeah. uh, but it's just really common it's common with Lyme disease it's common with syphilis it's the spherakete um, kind of diseases uh, but sometimes your body has this reaction where uh, when the bacteria starts to die off it's too much for your system and you your system can't deal with the endotoxins that that creates and you can have these really um, intense symptoms. And so I I don't know how I couldn't have learned this by this point cuz have done so much treatment at that right. point. But like I was like I need to get better fast cuz my whole life would come to a grinding halt again. I'd had to close my business and all that and I was like I got to I got I got to get better. So I'm going to take the full dose and even when I started having signs that I was having a pretty bad Herxheimer reaction, I was like, oh, I'm just going to muscle through. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to like drink lots of lemon water. <laughs> I'm already sick anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I let it get really extreme. And so I was having these um, these tremors, uh, these muscle tremors that look like seizures. They're not seizures in the actual sense of the word seizure, like the Just brain. when your children are watching. <laughs> <laughs> the brain activity is not the same as in a seizure, but like your muscles are tremoring. Okay. And so I was having this like full body muscle tremoring. And there was this one day where they just wouldn't stop. It was like every five minutes I'm having this full body muscle tremoring. And I'm just, it's, it's kind of like having seizures over and over and over oh and, and over God. and over and over and over again. Right. And at some point I said to my partner, I was like, I think I have to go to the hospital like yeah. like, some, like something's going on with this and I can't stop it at this point. And maybe they could give me something that will stop it because I just needed to stop yeah, tremoring every right. five minutes. Um, and so we ended up going to the hospital and this doctor walks in and he didn't even examine me. And he just says, like, no empathy at all. You have a conversion disorder and you need to go home. <gasps> And that was it. That was, the, that was the treatment that I got that day.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. And when, like we're trying to tell him, no, like I' I'm, I'm sure that it's this Jarish Herxheimer. you know, just, like can you give me something to help this stop? No.
0: Oh, I am I am
1: disgusted. Yeah. What did
0: that feel like?
1: Oh God. It was just, it was just like being back in the bathroom again. Yeah. It was like being yes. back in that moment of just like, oh, I'm totally on my own. Yeah. You know, even after all that time and all the things I'd learned and all the things I'd figured out, no one was going to listen to me because that diagnosis is on my chart. And it's still there. So from the bathroom to being someone who is figuring
0: things out, you know, you were on your own. And I know this, I kind of know this dynamic where you're, you're down they can't keep you there. Right. And you are going to figure it out Mm -hmm. and you, you do know your body and you do know some, there's some, maybe somebody out there who will listen, but if not, you're going to figure this out. So where did you go from the bathroom
1: to here? You know, how did you, yeah. Um, you know, finally, I had. I actually, and and this is good to say because I feel like this on this show, like, I'm so hard on medical providers, and I. I know. <laughs> I don't mean to be. Um, I actually had a really a good experience in the ER. I had another <laughs> very bizarre thing, and this was again like back in 2015, where um, one side of my body started tremoring, and the other side was like uh, kind of like paralyzed. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I <laughs> I went to the ER again that time because I was like, okay, like, this is just kind of too big and weird to not try right. to get some help with. And a uh, physician's assistant saw me, and she was wonderful. And she said to me, have you been tested for tick-borne illness? Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, they just gave me, like, the first part of the testing, the ELISA But by that point, I'd I'd actually learned a little bit more about it, and I knew that that test wasn't reliable, which it's not. It's like half the time it's wrong. Um, And so I I knew that, and um, she said, I think you should find a provider who knows about tick-borne illness and see them. Wow. Yeah, and so that night my husband spent like half the night on the Internet and he found the Columbia University Research Center on tick-borne illness, and then he found the descriptions of the tick-borne illnesses. Oh, okay. And when he got to the like, uh, there's this ehrlichiosis and the plasmosis—big words—tick-borne um, uh, illness. And when he got to the description, it was, oh my God, it was like spot on every 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 symptom i had had
0: oh my gosh
1: and it had started with like this can have central nervous system manifestations that can cause paralysis seizure-like activity muscle tremors muscle weakness it could cause respiratory distress which is exactly how my illness started with this like kind of extreme shortness of breath i mean it was just like everything it was right there what was that like? Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. It was incredible. You It know? feels like a home run. Yeah. Weirdly. Yeah. Like, yay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still didn't like have a doctor who could help me at that point, right. but like I had a, I had a name. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Must have been a huge relief.
0: Yeah. Because I'm sure from there you guys start Googling treatment. And what that looks like and um, that's a whole other story we talked about that in my interview yeah um you know once you find out that's what you have you feel so relieved and then you realize like there's a road a road ahead yeah but a road ahead yeah
1: Yeah. but then also knowing tick-borne illness helped us find the right doctors
0: yes that's Um, right and um and again just to give props to the ones that are doing a great job and listening to us yeah. You did get some help.
1: Yeah. And I had this really cool thing happen because Bloomington's a pretty small town. Um, I was going to the Y and I saw that physician's assistant. This was like way after I- <sighs> From I'd the re- hospital. Yeah. Like way after I'd recovered, you know, years down the road. And I was able to stop her and just say to her, when I showed up in the ER in, you know, 2015, you were the- first person to tell me that I might have a tick-borne illness. Yeah. And I did have a tick-borne illness and I did recover. And without you, I don't know where I'd be today. So it was I just so that. cool that I, I, I actually got to say that to her. It is. And I'm so glad she was at the right place at the right time. Yeah. I have so much gratitude that I did recover, yeah. you know, and what's, what's like really Crazy is like <laughs> I had a relatively quick recovery, even though like I'd I'd been sick six months when I like was formally diagnosed and formally started right. treatment for Lyme disease. And I was sick for another year. Yeah. Um, and that was a quick recovery. Like yeah. getting better in one year yeah. from starting treatment it is. is a quick recovery for a Lyme disease. Do you have um, something else you'd like to read? I do. I do. So now we're going to jump forward in the timeline of my life a little bit. So I I got through the, the Lyme disease and got, I mean, really um, totally better, which is a miracle. Um, but <laughs> my ex-husband um, had... Bipolar disorder, and we—it was not diagnosed. Um, you know, he had had a manic episode when I was pregnant with my daughter in 2010, and um, it was a—it was hard to nail down what exactly was happening with him, because for for that manic episode, what had happened is um, he became really really obsessed with global warming. Oh. So he would stay up all night reading things about global warming. And then he had just kind of rant about it um, all day. And he quit working and he but but then it was like he was doing things that were sort of like logical and practical too though. Like he got really involved with the organization that was working towards energy solutions. Okay. And, You know, like putting his like manic energy there. And so like he quit working to do that full time. That probably disguised the symptoms somewhat, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like he had asked me, do you mind if I take two weeks off? Because I just, I'm really feeling like, you know, this is important and I need to do this. It's my calling. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, take two weeks off and volunteer for this organization and do what you can in two weeks. Awesome. He just didn't go back to work after that and just got more and more ramped up. Um, and then, so it was hard to, like, nail down, like, this is definitely a mental health issue. This is definitely a manic episode. Right. Because, like, global warming was, and it, it still uh, yeah. is. And a, it can get you a really, really big worked problem. up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but then he spiraled into this uh, just crippling depression after that and actually didn't work for most of my pregnancy. Um, only started working again like a month before our daughter was born. Um, So like he was pretty like debilitated from mental illness for pretty much my entire pregnancy with my daughter. And um, so I like walked away from that experience going, oh, I think he has bipolar disorder. And his mother had a really severe form of bipolar disorder. So that was another clue. Like, okay, I think this is what it is. But he was so sensitive about it. He, I mean, he wouldn't even let me tell him that I thought he struggled with depression, even though he would have these long bouts of depression where he wouldn't work. And, and you're sitting all the here classic with this science. DSM of yours. Right. And I am, <laughs> yeah, like, I know you, I see you. Yeah. And by this time in my life, 20 2017, I was, at, I was a mental, I mean, I was like truly a mental health Practicing, professional, like, yes. you know, um, I'd done some other stuff before but this I like this is really what I was doing. So yeah, he wouldn't he wouldn't allow me to give him any kind of feedback um, on how I saw this mental health stuff. Yeah. And even when I tried to take him to couples counseling, he was just like, so defensive about it. So like I just I couldn't I couldn't get him to get help and get diagnosed. Right. But I kind of knew that this was a factor in our lives. And then in 2017, he actually became psychotic, like totally psychotic for the first time. Can I
0: ask something quickly
1: about, is that a feature of bipolar depression? It's a feature, well, it, it can, you can have psychotic features in depression. Okay. But it's usually more pronounced and more easily identifiable in mania. Okay. So he was manic. Yeah. And he was psychotic. Okay. So he wasn't sleeping. Right. He was having a lot of paranoid delusions and um, just really agitated all the time. And so, where this sort of part of the book opens is he has been psychotic for a week now. Yeah. And I could not get him hospitalized. If <sighs> like I had called, Every single organization I could think of. Um, I mean, and again, like, I am an actual therapist at this point. Right. Like, and I'd worked in a psych hospital and I'd worked at Centerstone. Like, I I could not get him help. And so I'm just living with him. And he's totally psychotic. And feeling unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. Very unsafe. Um, and at this point he actually hadn't targeted me so I would say no I actually didn't I didn't feel completely unsafe up to like where we're starting okay this. gotcha because um he was like he was very psychotic but he was also really vulnerable like mm-hmm. he was so hurt that people would target him this way okay you know? and this is part of his Paranoia. Yeah. So his par- his paranoid delusion, which was very consistent throughout, I mean, you know, I mean, it might still be going on for him. I don't know. Um, was that there was a group of women who had targeted him because he had shown interest in a woman and they were stalking him and they were plotting against him and they oh. wanted to kill him. <laughs> Scott thought that these women were sending messages through a Craigslist haiku page. Yeah, that's what it's. That's what I'm picking up. Oh wow. And so he would obsessively be reading these And trying to decode haikus. Yeah. Like he would spend he would spend all night on the computer reading these haikus. So at this point I would say, like what was it feeling really desperate for me was like my husband was so sick and i could not get him help. and people just kept saying just take him to the hospital and i'm like oh my god <laughs> do you think i haven't tried right just grab like, the feral cat by the face yeah it was it was so maddening you know and 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 then after your experiences too what take him to the hospital so they can say something like well get out of here you know you have well, I mean, illness. I thought if I could get him to the hospital, they would admit him because he was clearly right. so psychotic. But but I couldn't get him There's there. There's no way to do it. I mean, part of his delusion was that they were trying to make him look crazy and discredit him so that um, they could cover their tracks and people wouldn't find out that right. they were persecuting him. So, like, there was, I, could, I mean, I'd, I had... You know, of course I talked to him about going to the hospital like every day, Yeah, you know, and I begged and I did everything I could think of and tried every trick in the book. I, I could not get that man to go to the hospital. Right. I will also say that in a little while in this piece, I'm going to be referencing a visit. So I did talk him into going to a medical walk-in clinic okay. that day. okay. And, um, I was able to get the uh, doctor that we saw alone. I think he was actually a nurse practitioner. And I was able to explain exactly what was happening, right? And say, like, I'm an LCSW. I have worked on the psych units. I, I'm one hundred percent sure this is what's happening. Yeah, please, please, please describe or prescribe, not describe, but prescribe him something that will, Help him get out of this manic episode, yeah. and I suggested seroquel, which is a um, a fast acting medication that could help somebody come out of a manic episode. And he ended up <sighs> he ended up prescribing an antihistamine. What? Yeah, to make him As sleepy. No, 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 no. Yeah, That's yeah. Not how mania works. Yeah, an antihistamine called visceral <sighs> to make Scott sleepy. <laughs> so, so that was our, that was all the help Wow, air quotes again that we had gotten at that point. So that's going to come up because it's sort yeah. of part, it, it ends up working itself into his delusions. So, um so anyways, um the book sort of starts out at this point, right? Okay. Like we've been in wow. this for like a week. He is so psychotic. I haven't been able to get him help. And, um, at this point, I'm exhausted because part of his mania is that he would wake me up at night to tell me about his to talk know, about the it. delusions and yeah. everything. Um, so we start with, I'm trying to get some sleep. And it's the middle of the night is where this starts. Some hours later, the sound of Scott's footsteps on the stairs startled me awake my heart racing in anticipation of another ugly night of paranoia. He was moving quickly, in a frantic manner, informed by the speed at which his brain was whirring. In no time he was hovering over me. Get up, he said in a full voice, despite our seven-year-old daughter sleeping just feet away. I turned my head to read the blue glowing numbers on the clock, 324. Scott. It is three o'clock in the morning, I whispered. I need to sleep. I need to show you something. Get up, he insisted, louder, closer. I played through the scenario of further refusing in my head. He would escalate. My children would awaken. Then I would be dealing with a psychotic person and two scared kids who needed to go back to sleep. Okay, I said, quickly throwing my legs over the side of the bed and moving toward the stairs so he would stay quiet when he saw me acquiescing. I made sure to stealthily grab my cell phone and hold it against my palm and thigh should I need to call 911. He was right behind me on the stairs, too close. All my alarm bells were going off, but I stayed perfectly calm, thinking if I could stay calm, maybe I could calm him too, and then I could go back to bed. My heart sank as he led me to the computer, where I could see the Craigslist haiku page open, As soon as he glanced at the screen, his face contorted with malice. I know, he said. You know what? I asked. I know you're behind all of it. He addressed me with shock and anger in his voice. I stared at him with a mounting sense of helplessness. I knew immediately I was in an impossible situation. Delusions are like an impenetrable fortress of irrationality. I remember my abnormal psych professor saying to us undergrads, you can't talk someone out of their delusion. Don't even try. At the same time, I wasn't about to go along with it and claim responsibility for torturing him. Scott, I didn't do anything with those women. I don't know what you're talking about. I had no idea what else to say. I knew my denial would agitate him, but I couldn't find any other words. I found your messages, they are right here. You told me to stay off so you could send them messages, but I found them, I know. Scott, I told you to stay off the computer because every time you get on, you get very upset. I promise I didn't send any messages. See, look at the time that one was sent, I said, pointing to the time posted next to the haiku he was referencing. I was asleep then. I could see him working through this in his brain, and hope flickered in me for just a moment until a triumphant look spread across his face and he noticed the cell phone I held cupped against my thigh. You had your phone up there. Yes, but I was asleep, I insisted, knowing that I had already lost him. His eyes fixed on the phone again. I knew he wanted to take the phone from me, probably to look for more evidence, but I needed my phone. I had my escape route planned and the phone was a part of the plan. The bathroom was behind me. If he made a move to hurt me, I could run to the bathroom, lock myself in and call for help. Looking at Scott, the steely expression on his face, I quickly calculated that it was time to execute my escape. It was as if he read my mind. The moment my shoulder began to pivot toward the bathroom, he lunged. He grabbed my arm with a force that made me take a sharp inhale. All he seemed to be aware of was the phone in my hand. He grabbed for it, and I jerked it away. He then grabbed the wrist connected to the hand holding the phone, the wrist that had never been quite as strong after it was broken. Christ, he is strong, I thought to myself. I held onto the phone, struggling against him, but it was no use. I was still recovering after two years of illness, and he easily overpowered me. Taking the phone out of my hand, he placed the phone in a line of cell phones in the landline, arranged by the computer. Looking at the assembled phones, I realized he had amassed all of my tools for calling for help. Now an abject terror began to rise within as I acknowledged the truth. He had a plan for me. I wasn't going to be able to cool the fever of his delusions. He put his palm on my back and pushed me toward the computer screen. My hand still throbbed from our scuffle as I stumbled toward the laptop. I regained my balance and looked at the amateur haikus. Yellow letters against a black screen. Scott ranted about cracking the code, about the meaning of each one, about gander-stalking and his persecution. Finally, he got to his main point. I know you are poisoning me. He had pieced together that Frank, the nurse practitioner we had seen earlier, was working for me and the Ganderstalkers, and Frank had given him poison tablets. His eyes were wild and hard when he said, I know you talked to Frank. You were both gone for a long time, too long. Don't lie. I know, so you don't need to lie. I didn't know how to respond, so I just stayed quiet, knowing I was trapped. There was no right answer. I had talked to Frank. He was right. There was no way he would believe I had merely been trying to get him help. I noticed his medication placed in the careful arrangement of items. Clearly the visceral had not touched his mania. Scott followed my gaze to the bottle and snatched it up, opening the lid and pouring three of the pills into his hand. Take these, he said. If they are not poison, you can prove it to me and take them. I stared at the three pills considering my options. I could take them, and it might temporarily appease Scott, but while 3-Vistaril probably wouldn't kill me, they would render me unconscious for at least 8 to 10 hours. And it was now nearly 4 a.m., and my children had school in just a few hours. If I were incapacitated by the meds, they would be alone with their psychotic dad. Scott, this is your medicine for sleep. It is not meant for me. It would not be good for me to take it. He looked into my eyes, his gaze holding no love for me. You will take it. No, Scott, I won't. A look of fierce determination came over him, and he grabbed my upper arm tightly, drawing me closer. Then he forced his chest against mine, his feet toe-to-toe with me, and began pushing me back until I was pinned between his body and the kitchen sink behind me. "You will," he insisted. He squeezed my arm with such strength that I knew there would be a bruise there the next day. I searched his eyes for a sliver of the man I knew, the man who had held my babies tenderly, who had cared for me so well in the first year of my illness. He was nowhere. He brought the hand with the three pills to my mouth, pressing the hard ovals to my lips. I gritted my teeth and pressed my lips together. My terror ignited a primal part of me. I began to fight against him, twisting and pushing with my arms and legs until we both lost our balance and fell to the floor. Because he was still gripping my arms when I fell, I had no way to reach out and soften my landing. My head made contact with the floor, bouncing when it hit. I felt dazed for a moment, and he quickly gained the upper hand again, pressing my shoulders into the floor, climbing on top of me so he could pin my arms down with his knees to free his hands. He began to force the medication into my mouth. He was rough with me, his movements quick and aggressive. When he pushed the medication against my lips again, they felt bruised already from his first attempt. The pain of his full weight pinning my arms was excruciating. I clenched my jaw and locked my teeth together as best I could to prevent those pills from entering my body. It felt like I was being crushed beneath him for an eternity. My teeth clenched so hard, they began to form fine cracks. In actuality, it was probably no more than three or four minutes. Finally, his own mind distracted him with another thought about the haiku another piece of the puzzle he needed to show me. He climbed off of me, got to his feet and went back to the computer, completely absorbed in the cryptic code only he could break. I lay there and took stock of the room. I didn't have long until his focus would shift back to me. His back was turned and my cell phone was the last phone in the string of phones on the counter. My first thought was that I might be able to grab it before his attention shifted. I very quietly got up from the floor and crept toward him on tiptoes, silently. The moment I was in reach, I grabbed the phone and in one swift movement turned and began to sprint for the bathroom. I could hear Scott's footsteps behind me, but I didn't pause to look over my shoulder. I reached the bathroom door and I leapt through. Even in my terror, I thought not to slam it shut so I wouldn't wake the kids, but shut it quickly and quietly instead. As soon as I turned the lock, I could hear him reach the other side. I instinctively ran to the farthest point from the door and pressed my back against the wall, sliding to the floor, wide eyes fixed on the door. I wasted no time in calling 911. I knew if he wanted to get in, he could. The door was flimsy. He could probably break it down with his bare hands. He was a carpenter by trade. So if he didn't go with the brute force, he could easily grab some tools and take the door off the hinges. Fortunately, he walked away from the door just after the 911 line began to ring. It was answered after two rings by a woman with a very calm voice. She was matter-of-fact, but I could hear the concern in her voice after I explained I was locked in the bathroom. My husband had just attacked me, and I was afraid for my life. She asked me if there were any weapons in the home, just kitchen knives, I responded. She calmly told me she would send officers right away, and she would stay on the phone with me until they got there. She asked me if I knew where my husband was in the house, and I suddenly realized I could hear him, and he was talking to someone. I slowly crept to the door and put my ear to it, and I could hear my husband saying, my wife is trying to kill me. He poured his story out in a rapid sweep of words about being stalked, harassed, and poisoned. My jaw dropped as I listened. I whispered into the phone. He is in the room just outside the bathroom. He's on the phone. He must have heard my whisper. Suddenly, he yelled through the door. I called the domestic violence hotline because you're trying to poison me. Then I heard him go back to the call, which didn't last long. I still don't know what the domestic violence advocate told Scott, but it probably wasn't what he wanted to hear. In this moment, where fear was so dominant, I was struck by the absurdity of both of us calling for help because we both believed the other might kill us. I nearly laughed. The impulse interrupted by the voice of the 911 operator on the line asking me if I was still there. still okay. Yes, I whispered. How is this my life? Passed through my mind. When Scott got off the phone, he came back to the door and began to pound on it and jiggle the handle. My heart dropped and I felt nauseous. I yelled out, I called the police. You need to get away from the door. They will be here soon. I hoped he wouldn't keep trying to hurt me if he knew the police would be there any second. Those words I uttered had unintended consequences. On hearing the police were coming, Scott fled.
0: Oh my God. That's when he took off.
1: That's one of the times that he took off. Yeah.
0: Well, that was intense, Mirabai.
1: Yeah. Are you okay? <laughs> that's hard to read. It's, it's definitely hard to read. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, That's that was a really scary moment.
0: So what's it like to revisit that from this place?
1: <sighs> you know, really... I just feel so sad for both of us. Yeah. You know, I feel really sad that that I had to live through that. But also, like, I was really sad for him. Because you knew who he was, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, like, later I'll get to, like, yeah, like, there was some domestic violence in our relationship. And it did date back, you know, longer. Um, but... Like, he was acting in a way that I don't, he wouldn't have acted had he not been in the grips of
0: a mental health crisis. Yeah.
1: Um, And so I, you know, just, I don't know. I I know because he actually um, (sighs) showed up um, just kind of out of the blue one day. It was the last time that I saw him um, and just, you know, apologized and Cried. Yeah, cried.
0: I, I imagine that in his more lucid moments, he's pretty sad.
1: Yeah, he's yeah. lost a lot. Yeah, yeah. He he did know that um, he really hurt me and scared me and sure. Yeah, so it's just yeah, it's sad and it's just really, it's really sad and really frustrating that like. I couldn't get him help, you know.
0: You felt frustrated by that?
1: Well, yeah, because, I mean, had that first phone call I made um, to the emergency services at our community mental health clinic where they can initiate an involuntary hold. Like, had that worked, had I been able to get him in the hospital, neither of us would have had to go through that. Why didn't it work? You know, he, he didn't have an official diagnosis of bipolar disorder at that oh, okay. point. So I think that was working against us. But also, you know, I have had clients who actually have been in a very similar situation who had um, a family member with very well-documented diagnosis. And unless they say the words, I'm going to kill you or I'm going to kill myself, they will not... Involuntarily hospitalize them. They will not. Okay. And so I think like there were probably some things going on with my situation that might have even made it a little more hard mm-hmm. because he didn't have that already. But I mean, there's also plenty and plenty, plenty, plenty of people out there who um can't get hospitalized unless, right. you know, they say those words. And I and I You know, I feel like that's a larger failure of our system. Sure. I think our system is horrendously underfunded. Yeah. Psychiatric care is failing people, like, left and right right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, in some ways it's like they did tighten up uh, the laws around involuntary care because it had been really abused in the past. Absolutely. Yeah, you I mean, know. you could you could be put away for having, you know, periods or... Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there was some, you know, historical reasons why we needed to tweak that. Sure. But um, it's interesting, I actually did a, I wrote a paper when I was an undergraduate on... Um, on this exact topic, so it's sort of weird that like I end up having this like experience later in life, but it was about how like we transitioned from facility-based care to community mental health care, and when they very first made that transition, and it was like 1963 or something like that, they it was beautiful. Uh huh. They created this beautiful system they they funded it so well and there were all these community supports in place for people. Interesting. And all these mechanisms to help keep them safe. And I and I could have the dates wrong but I wanna say like that bill was passed in 1963 and they began cutting funding in like 1967, 68. Okay. And it has been cut yeah. Every year. Yeah. Like and then in, in the Reagan era, it was oh, just it. like slashed, right? So, you know, we created a system and then we just didn't take care of it. We didn't right. fund it. We didn't do what we needed to do to keep it functional. We didn't we didn't have
0: any respect for what it was doing for the community. We didn't respect our communities.
1: And we don't respect people who have mental illness. No.
0: Well, they get exiled from the community. Yeah. Which is essentially what happened to Scott, right? Yeah. I mean, self exile. Yeah. Yeah. Not that he has any control over it without proper medication. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me when, when they, you know, there's this law that they, Scott would have had to have said, I'm going to kill you. But he really believed that he was feeding you poison pills. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was killing you. He he thought he was.
1: Yeah. And it was unbelievable to me that that incident didn't qualify as right. a threat to others. Right. Like you have to be a threat to yourself or a threat to others. The law doesn't say you have to say those words. Okay. That's just how it's interpreted. Okay. What the law says is you have to be a threat to yourself or a threat to others or gravely disabled by your illness. Oh, my God. He was all of those he things. He was all of those things. Yeah. But how it's interpreted by the people who are the gatekeepers for involuntary care is they have to say that.
0: The idea that you may have been incapacitated and then the kids would wake up to that is terrifying. Yeah. So he took off. Yeah. That night before the cops got there. Mm -hmm. How long was he gone?
1: He was gone all night. He ran through the woods. He buried his wallet and his cell phone in the woods because he thought he was being tracked. Right. And um, he came back. He was on all night and all day. And he came back like 7 p.m. the next day. And um, the police had told me when he comes back, you could call us back. Okay. So um, I did. Were you scared when he showed back up? Let's see, one of the like really really weird things about this for me, and I and I know this might not make sense to everybody, I was actually more scared when he was out in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: because I, he was so vulnerable. Like he was, he had no capacity to take care of himself or make right. d- decent decisions. And I just was like, oh my god, something. He's gonna die out there. Yeah. Like, that's what I kept thinking was. He's going to die out there. He's going to die out there. So, you know, when he came back, I, it was this weird mix of like, yeah, I mean, yes, scary. And like also relieved, like, oh, he didn't die out there. Yeah. Oh, thank God. Right. Um,
0: And now maybe I can get him the help he needs. You know, again, it's like a second chance to do that.
1: Yeah. And, and so the, at this point, I'm like, okay, like he is a threat to others. He tried to, he tried to. <laughs> You know, I mean, he thought he was killing me. You know, because he thought the tablets sure. were poison, right? Like, so I'm like, okay, he he is clearly a threat to others, and now I can call the police back, and they're going to take him to the hospital. Yeah, and they didn't because I mean, they 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 came in and they talked to him, and he didn't say, "I'm going to kill my wife. Right. I'm not going to kill myself." And they said, <laughs> he's "Everything gonna, seems fine here." Well, I mean, they. Not and not exactly. Okay. It was more like our hands are tied mm-hmm. and there is this one police officer in particular. They were actually sheriff's department guys who was really really kind to me, you know, and said, "I'm so sorry you're in this situation and I wish there was something I could do." And you know, he said, "We get these calls and you know, just our hands are tied and we hate it too." Oh, gosh. In other words, it's a broken system. It's a broken system. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, like, just because I'm hearing recent experiences from my clients, had they gotten him to the hospital, like, they might not have kept him. And then to kind of reconnect
0: it to your health again, Mm -hmm. how did that episode and all of everything that you went through with Scott in that period of nine months to a year or
1: whatever, how are you, how are you staying healthy? It's unbelievable to me that I didn't get sick again during that time. And I didn't, I didn't get sick during that time and I didn't get sick again until 2020. So, and that was another tick bite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, uh, so, you know, it, I, I mean, there's part of me that's like, I don't know. Like, I mean, the universe did me a solid there. I don't know because I know I, mean, I was under so much stress. Yeah. I mean, I really was careful, though, in terms of like I've taken like stupid amounts of supplements ever since yeah. the first round. And I was just I stayed on all of that. So I was just, like supporting my system with a lot of supplements. And then um, I stayed on the Lyme diet. Yep. And, you know, as much as I could, I tried to like still do some yoga and still take some walks right. and you know just like sleep when I when I could when he wasn't waking me up um with it and just you know just try to do as much self care as I could. Yeah.
0: Which I think you've seen in your in your through your illness and in your practice both what you know what that means to someone's immune system.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's just
0: no disputing it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I sometimes feel self-conscious these days. Like I know I could come across as that like obnoxious person <laughs> who's like, yeah. you know, I eat really healthy uh, and I I'm do sorry, yoga, to you? And, uh, you know, <laughs> but, you know, like it is a matter of life and death for me, you know, like I've, it's like, yep. and I, in all of these experiences that I've had, it's like. Like no, like like clinging to my health is like it's so important. Um, and so yeah, I just you know I like I feel like all of those practices of you know like I can't control this one thing, but I'm gonna put the best food I can in my body, and I'm gonna like take these fucking supplements, and I'm gonna yes, I'm gonna take these walks, and I'm gonna do this yoga. Like you know, it's It's medicine.
0: Yeah, I mean it's not just. For me, it's not just preventative. It's actually, it can treat, you know, some of the more acute things that I have to deal with too.
1: Yeah, and it feels empowering that like-
0: Absolutely. There
1: are some things that you can do.
0: Yeah, and you have to have some control over your own
1: condition. hmm Did you really crack your teeth? Yeah, I did. Oh, Jesus. And actually, that was really, really challenging- uh, when I realized that that had happened because I had, it was really very, it was fairly recent. It was last year. Um, I had had this weird period of time. I'd, I'd left Scott. I'd like, I'd done so much healing. i would like done all this EMDR work and I'd have it, had a new relationship and I was just feeling like really on solid ground. Um, but I had this weird thing where I kept getting cavities and I've never been somebody that got cavities. I mean, I don't even eat refined sugar. So right. I was like, what the heck is going on? I'm getting all these cavities. And, um, like after like the fourth cavity, I was working with a dentist and this one was extra bad and I was going to have to have a root canal. And he's talking to me about like my history. Cause he's like, this doesn't make sense. Right. You know, like you, you know, you, you, your diet's good. You're healthy. Like, yeah, your oral hygiene is Right, yeah, like, to I'm, be, you know, I brush and floss. Yeah, and heck do, yeah. I, I do all the things. Um, and uh, and I had just didn't have that history, you know. Right. Like, some people just get, like, yeah. born with bad teeth. Well, and there's, or, like,
0: there's all this stuff with the pH of your saliva, too. I've mm-hmm. gone through some things with my teeth from autoimmune disease. So yeah. it's, you know, it happens. But for you, yeah, he's saying yeah. this is odd.
1: So he started asking me about, he said, you know, have you ever been in an accident where um, – You know your teeth like click together, and it. (laughs) And I was like, well, I had this situation with my ex-husband where you know he knocked me to the ground and I hit my head pretty hard and I think my teeth probably clicked together then. But then he, you know, was on top of me and he was trying to force these pills in my mouth and and the force. I mean, he was the force he was putting was incredible. Like how hard he was pressing against my mouth. My teeth were clenched so tight. Well, he had all of his weight on
0: you. I mean, you had the upper hand, so I can, and he was strong. So
1: I can imagine. Yeah. He was a construction worker. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, that's it. Like, that's, that's why,
0: No, you know,
1: you've gotten all these, you know, you, he said, he, he looked at the x-rays again and he was like, oh, Yeah, this these are cracks, and they're getting they're getting you know bacteria in them, so they're turning into cavities. But these are all cracks, and I and I remember, like I had like a visual come into my mind of seeing the X-rays of my at my old dentist's office uh, when I got the first set of cavities, and like remembering that they just looked like these fine cracks, and I was like, wow, yeah, yeah, that's That's a heck of a thing to be
0: left with. That is that's terrible
1: yeah and it was just it was hard because i felt like i'd done all this healing and then i was just like kind of right back in a really tough spot of just like feeling
0: when there are permanent reminders (sighs) it's really hard yeah and when there's damage yeah we think of ourselves and we are and this is what your podcast is about we're so resilient Mm -hmm. but we take some we get some dents and dings right Mm -hmm. you know there are scars those are scars
1: yeah. 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 And you know, I mean I guess the only good thing about it is like I think because of Huh, I didn't think I'd get emotional at this part. Um I think because there was such a history of gaslighting in my relationship and Scott was constantly telling me that things were my fault. And then I was overreacting and and blowing things out of proportion. That was a big thing he would say to me a lot. You're blowing this out of proportion. Uh, When he would get rageful. Um, I think that there was a part of me that didn't know if it was real. What had happened, you know, that night. Like there was a part of me that was like, "What, what if I'm misremembering? Or what if it wasn't that bad? Or maybe he wasn't pressing that hard. But when I learned that my teeth had been cracked. Yeah. It was it was undeniable. It was real. That it, you know it was real. He really, you know, that really happened. Yeah. And um I think that that's hard and, and also good, you know, because there was I could finally be like, yeah, <laughs> I didn't, you know, yeah, I didn't make that one up. It wasn't a conversion disorder, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then you there's can that believe too. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was another hard piece about the conversion disorder diagnosis was that history of gaslighting too. You know. For sure. There's just been so many instances in my life where it's like people were just like lobbing it back at me, and and you take you know, and you've taken it
0: in, and allowed yourself to question yourself and your instincts, mm-hmm. intuition. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's really, I think it's really typical in illness, especially with women. Again, we have to acknowledge with who identify as female. This is what, this is very common, you know, and then relationships are hard anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but you have, you've had it, you've had a lot of that. Yeah this is a great moment for us to like, look at resilience. All the things that I've been through, they haven't just given me strength. They have reinforced my community with strength. Yeah. You know, I'm bringing something different to the table now. Yeah. um, Because of those experiences. Yeah. And I feel better about who I am as a consequence of that.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's always such a um, an interesting thing when I think about it because, you know, I don't think I could ever be like, hey, I'm really glad that happened. You know, like, right. <laughs> like those experiences were awful like, and, you know, not anything I'd want to live through again. But, um, but uh, I truly have a life that is so incredible right now. Yeah. You know, um, and I think in part that's because you know i i had to like <laughs> really get in there and and do this work to heal and um you know and and one thing about my own experience and i i don't think this is true for everybody but you know i i write at the very end of the book i, I write you know like i can do anything yeah Like, that's like, honestly, that's how I feel, which is like a crazy thing to say out loud, but it is like, I feel like I can do anything. Like I, I did that. I got through that. Yeah. You know what you can do now. I can do anything.
0: Yeah. Cause
1: I am strong as fuck. And we're tested in the fire. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, I feel like, you know, that's, that's part of why I've felt so passionate about Talking about resilience, yeah. um Because I think it is—it's an incredible thing. It's—it's it's an incredible thing, and I know not everybody has the opportunity to get to the place where they believe they can do anything. But um, yeah, I just—I just feel really lucky for the the support from my community and yeah. my therapists that I've had. I've had two just brilliant trauma therapists who have helped me so much, and um, you know, finding. My partner Alex, who was just the best, he was the just best. the best. Yeah, um, just the kindest, like most supportive, most awesome person. And yeah, I just I really think lucky. that what
0: um, what you're saying about the support you've had from your community, your partner, the res- the mental health resources you've had access to, it is important to to note that not everybody has the opportunity. Those were your words to to find themselves in a place where they feel resilient and powerful again. I have hope that everyone can get there. We do need more resources. And there are so many people who are underserved and don't have access, you know. Um, And that's another, I I, I do have daily gratitude for uh, my family who have gotten me through this for, you know, my community, you know, all of it. I've had access to mental health resources that have helped. I've had access to, I mean, not everyone can spend $8,000 out of pocket on their supplements. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it took me three years to pay it off, but, you know, know, still not everybody even has that opportunity. So um, resilience, I guess it kind of takes a village.
1: Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, the, the very last words in my book are, thank you, thank you.
0: Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I'm super excited about the book. I'm going to read it cover to cover, maybe more than once. Um, that would be like me. I can't wait. Yeah. Will you do me a favor? Please you stay the fuck away from ticks. Oh, God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I will do my Please. best. I'm going to be duct taping you
0: before you go on your hikes. It's just.
1: I'm really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, yes, uh, folks, you can buy the book, Holding Hope One Family's Odyssey Through Lyme Disease and Psychosis. It is available on Amazon right now. So go get it. Get it. Get that it's, book. it's good. You're going to love good. it. You'll like it. badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show first of all kevin evans who has volunteered his time recording and editing the show thank you kevin another big thanks to austin lucas and his record label last chance records for allowing us the use of his original music in addition we would like to thank kate long and her band Rodeola for the use of their original music Finally, a big thanks to the badass team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show.